Let's begin this morning turning to God's word. You're already there while I've been talking in 2 Peter chapter 1. And uh, if you're new with us this morning, we just began our study of this little letter known as 2 Peter last Sunday, and we just began an introduction um, after finishing a a multi-year study of the Gospel of Matthew. uh, I decided to come now to a shorter New Testament book, and as I shared with uh, you last Sunday, I think this is a letter that I need to hear right now, and I trust that If uh, I need to hear it, maybe some others here need to hear it as well. We're going to this morning uh, reflect on verses 3 and 4. I'm really not going to go very far, but for the sake of context and getting an idea of what Peter's talking about, I would like to read verses 1 through 11. This is God's word, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Amen. Let's pray. God, we pause one more time to pray, to speak with you, because we, as we come to your word, as we've read it now, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, not only make it understandable to us, help us to understand what you intended, but we pray, gracious Spirit of God, that you would do that powerful work of taking your written word now and using it to search our lives, our thoughts, our ways. We don't want to just come and go to church this morning. We ask reverently that you would be at work by your word, by the power of Jesus, changing us little by little to make us more like him. We ask this in his name and for his honor. Amen. Second Peter, this letter, this second letter in the New Testament, 
written by Peter, is a call to godliness. Peter's at the close of his life. He says to the believers, down in verse 14 of chapter 1, he knows that the laying aside of his earthly dwelling is imminent. He's going to die soon. The Lord Jesus had told him that he would die as a martyr out of love for Jesus. And Peter is writing to believers, Jews and Gentiles, 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 um, maybe that's gentle people, I don't know, um, Gentiles, and he was writing to them in an area, and his concern at this point is with the passing of years that there are those who are thinking, well, because Jesus hasn't come, maybe he's not going to come anytime soon. And they're beginning to live like Jesus isn't coming soon. And there are others who are apparently taking the teaching of the Apostle Paul on grace and the grace of God. And they're saying, well, because God saved you by grace, then that means you can pretty much live how you want to live. And you don't have to worry about, you know, being serious about that Christian living and godliness. You know, that's for hardcore people, maybe missionary types and stuff like that. But, you know... You just accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and, and uh, you're good. You, you won't go to hell, and you can coast the rest of the way. And, and Peter's greatly concerned about that. Throughout the letter, from the beginning to end, he's calling those to whom he's writing to diligence in godliness. And godliness, as we saw last Sunday morning, is, is a word that sounds good. What One of us doesn't think godliness is good, but when you think about it, what does it really mean? And I offered a brief definition, but it can be summarized in short by living as a Christian toward or unto God. In other words, doing everything that you do in your daily living in a way that you're living with God in mind. You're living for God. You're living unto God. You're doing what you do because you love him. You're doing what you do because you reverence him. He's God. You fear him, not with a cowering fear because you've been, you've been bought with the blood of Christ, you've been forgiven, but he's God, almighty God, and you live because you love him, you live because you fear him, and you're living day by day, learning a little bit more to learn what is pleasing to him. You don't assume that I naturally know what is pleasing to God, you're applying yourself to the Bible to, to learn what pleases my Father in heaven. What would please my Lord and Savior who bought me with his blood? Godliness. It's a call to godliness. And Peter is adamant that godliness is not optional. It's not optional. Look at what he says. We read down, down in, for example, in verse 9, these qualities, these qualities that he's describing in the verses before, moral excellence and knowledge, godliness, brotherly kindness, these kind of characteristics of Christian living, he says, verse 9, he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. So unless you want to be a blind or short-sighted Christian, we want to grow in godliness. And in fact, those who don't care about these things, who just live what they want, even while professing Christ, they have forgotten, verse 9, their purification from their former sins. And how sad and how true that we who profess Jesus Christ, once upon a time when we were really sensitive to our guilt before God, we were really conscious of how we have sinned against him, 
We wondered how we could ever be loved by God, ever be forgiven. And there was a time when, when through the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God, maybe somebody was preaching or maybe we heard a song, but we were just overwhelmed with God's mercy. We knew that we were worthy of judgment. We knew we were worthy of shame and condemnation. And he loves me. And Jesus willingly, knowingly lived for me and died for me and gave himself for me and bought me and purchased me. And, and once a time, maybe early on in our faith, we, we loved Jesus with maybe a childlike faith, but we loved him because all we knew was we were guilty of great sin. And he extended to us unfathomable mercy. And so our lives... Our days, early in those days, we may have been immature, we, we may have stumbled, but we really wanted to please Jesus. But maybe as the years or the months go by, we become careless, and maybe we haven't really thought about our living lately, what is pleasing to our Lord who bought us with his blood. So godliness is not optional. Peter is making that very clear here, and it's not only Peter, of course it's in the whole whole Bible. You, you can't just use Jesus as a salvation product that you purchase. Because the, the very essence of salvation, think about it. Yes, he's forgiving you of your sins, but what are your sins and my sins? Our sins are against God who made us in his image for his glory. And salvation is forgiving you of and me of, if when you trust in Christ, of how we have poorly borne the image of God. We have misrepresented God. And salvation is saving us to bring us back to be the image bearer that we were created to be. God saved us to be like Jesus. So, um, I mean, we need to hear it from Peter. Uh, he didn't say it this way, but... Uh, he is saying this older, godly, gentle, humble man at this point who's himself, Peter's made many mistakes, as we know, and they're recorded in Holy Scripture. Talk about humbling. He's telling us, and the Holy Spirit is telling us, there is no other way. This is the way of Christianity. We are called to be like Jesus. We are called to godliness, to live toward God. But that prospect this morning for all of us but maybe particularly some of us this here this morning is imposing because we know something about ourselves and uh we've gotten our minds that um oh has god got his work cut out with me because you don't know my family you don't know what my parents were like and my grandparents and we've got these genes and they make you like me and and uh, my character and my personality. And, I mean, I, I, these things here, moral excellence and, and, the, and the, or the fruits of the Spirit, patience, kindness, self-control, that kind of, boy, I don't know. I, 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 I believe that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. I, I believe he died on the cross for my sins. But, I mean, I've got deep-set patterns, ways of thinking, and I think God's just going to have to make an exception. Well, he's not going to. Peter's told us that. And this, this is where I'm coming to now as we come to verses 3 and 4. Sure, we are imposing projects. The Bible's pretty straightforward about that. Um, the Bible doesn't tell you you're all good. It essentially tells you, Gabe Rogers paraphrased, you're messed up. 
tells you the reality about, uh, and I am too, by the way, just, we are corrupt in our sin. We are deeply flawed. More than flawed, we are, we are corrupt. We are, and that's why God has to make us new, why we have to be born again. But even when we're born again, even when we are made new creatures in Jesus Christ, we still have this indwelling sin nature. We still have the patterns of thinking, the ways of living. We still have this tendency to live away from God. Sin is like gravity, always pulling on us, always tempting us. And we have Satan and we have the world. We have our own flesh always against us. And so we may think, what hope is there for me? I mean, what can me godly, me? I mean, I've known people who are godly. I can't be like them. And some of you have just determined in your heart and mind, that's just the way it is. And uh, you're wrong. And the reason is not you're wrong is not because maybe your perspective about yourself isn't accurate. Uh, I, I, I have deep set patterns and things I know, you know, tendencies of thinking or maybe being anxious. Maybe some of you can identify with that. And I know God's commanded me, don't be anxious for anything. And God has proven himself so trustworthy. And why should I doubt him? Why should I be anxious about anything? And yet I still have this tendency to do that. That's dumb. But I have this pattern set in me. And I can think, how, how is that going to change? How can, I, how can I be like more like our friend Charlie Jaworski, who went to be with the Lord and, and would just say, oh, I don't know, God's got it. He, I mean, <laughs> you, I really don't think the man was anxious. How can, how can I be like that? Some of you are thinking, there's no way. I can't. You're wrong. The reason you're wrong is not because of your perspective of yourself. It's because you have a low view of the power and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And Peter's going to introduce us to the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ in verses 3 and 4. Jesus is God's provision for us in the process of becoming godly. Jesus, who he is... What he possesses, what he has, and knowing him is God's provision for becoming godly. This is what Peter focuses on verses 3 and 4. In verse 2, just go up briefly. Remember, Peter is telling us that God desires grace and peace to be multiplied to us. And then he, in verses 3 and 4, he focuses on Jesus our Lord. He focuses on the attributes and the possession and the power of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice, we're gonna, I have five points, and we'll, we'll get to those very quickly. But I want you to notice that, that it's, verses 3 and 4 are very compact, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to godliness through the... If I were to write a sentence like this in uh, high school, I would have had the teacher would have written R-O on the, on the uh, paper in red ink. R-O, run on sentence. And I do tend to have run on sentences. And we can think, wow, Peter, that's not, that's not very good. Even, even the most brilliant and accomplished New Testament Greek scholars and some of their commentaries, they wrestle in verses 3 and 4 to, to kind of get an idea of what phrase relates to which phrase and and, for example, in verse 3, seeing that his divine power, there's debate over, is that referring to God the Father or is that relating to Jesus our Lord? 
and I think it does relate primarily to Jesus our Lord, but I think that the the compact and overflowing nature of verses 3 and 4 is intentional by the Spirit, obviously, but to, to kind of give this impression, you can't contain, as it were, or neatly summarize the all-abounding, glorious sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So I've got five points, and I'm going to try to lay out for you verses 3 and 4, but I'm not going to begin to try to contain or summarize the overwhelming glory and abundance of Jesus Christ. So having noted that, let's look together this morning for a few remaining moments at the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He can change you. He can change me because of who he is. First, his divinity. Peter draws our attention to the divinity of Jesus Christ. Seeing that, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us everything. His divine power. Nathan, could you just turn me down just a tweak? Thank you. Because I'll probably get excited in the next few moments, and I don't want a lot of echo. Um, Thank you. His divine power. Jesus is divine. He is God. One of the areas in which we've grown, or I've grown, and we've grown together over the past few years is appreciating in the Gospels and in the New Testament the doctrine that the eternal Son of God, when he became a man became a true man. We've grown in our understanding of the true humanity of Jesus Christ. So that as we went through the Gospel of Matthew, I, I hope you as well, I was moved by the humanity of my Lord. He knows what it's like to live on this earth. He knew really what it was like to be hungry, thirsty, tired. He slept in a boat. He wasn't kind of a man when he became a man. He wasn't sort of a man. He wasn't this super uh, human um, Marvel comic book kind of creature. He was a true man when he became a man. And yet he never set aside his deity. Deity can't change. And so the mystery of the incarnation is that the eternal son of God took to himself a true humanity so that one person, the son, possesses two natures, human and divine. The mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of Jesus Christ and who he is. Understand it perfectly? No. Get your head around it completely? Absolutely not. But truth? Absolutely. This is our hope. So we've grown in our appreciation of the humanity of Jesus Christ. I think maybe for some of us growing up, we so emphasize the divinity of Jesus Christ that we maybe lost sight of his true humanity. So that for our young people here, you who are kids or teens, and it's hard growing up in this life, and you need to know Jesus knew what it was like to live in his teens. And by the way, he had to study. (laughs) He had to learn. Figure that out. Pertaining to his human nature, he couldn't just tap his divine nature and pass the test for Bible. He grew in stature. So we've grown in the understanding of the humanity of Christ. And at the same time, we need to remember and emphasize what the Holy Spirit here by Peter emphasizes, that Jesus is none other than the divine Son of God. He is God, one with the Father. 
He's not a good teacher. He's not a guy who has a special relationship with God. He is divine. And this is important because no matter who you are, no matter how deep set the patterns are in your life, no matter how imposing godliness may seem to you, here's the news this morning. And this is really what a consumer culture like ours needs to hear. We are so impressed with ourselves and with with the trends there are and, you know, what product is hot. And we just, we understandably tend to think that who we are determines reality. And, and friend and dear one this morning, no, God determines reality. And he can change you. God is God. Jesus is the Son of God, God the Son. And he is divine. And God can handle you and me. He can change you. Jesus can change you, and he can change me. Godliness is possible because of who Jesus is. He is divine. Secondly, Peter draws our attention, verse 3, to his divine power. Jesus is powerful. He is all-powerful. His power has no limit. Maybe you remember the scene on the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, and, and the winds and the waves picked up, and, and the disciples were terrified. They woke Jesus up. Remember, he was sleeping on the boat. Again, he was tired after a day of ministry. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 24, they said, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind, and it became calm. And the disciples said after they witnessed this, who is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Answer, he's God. And he's all therefore all powerful. His power is divine. His power knows no limit. He has absolutely all power and authority. Jesus does. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Lord. He is God the Son, and he has all power. He can handle you. He can handle me. He can make us into what he wants us to be. He's that great. And we need to reverence him that way. Do not minimize the power of Jesus. Don't make him into a therapist. Don't make him into a salesman who's trying to pitch something to you. He is the sovereign I am, King of kings and Lord of lords, before whom every knee will bow. He's God, and we worship him as God, and his power is divine. Thirdly, Peter draws our attention in verse 3 to his call. His divinity, his power, his call. Peter says that Jesus' divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us. I want to go back to the middle of verse 3. Just notice that everything here is Peter's helping us understand how all this relates to everything we need for life and godliness is found in Jesus. Everything we need for life and godliness is found in and through Jesus. And he is the one 
who called us, end of verse 3. And this isn't a phone call. This isn't a text. Um, I was just reading an article yesterday about some people apparently still have pagers. Uh, that they just, Some of you don't even know what those are. A little thing you wear on your belt. And, um, so this isn't a page. Uh, this call that is spoken of in the scriptures is a powerful call. It's the call that called you when you were dead spiritually in your sins, away from God, and by his word and by the good news about Jesus and his death on the cross for your sins, the Spirit of God sent someone to tell you about the good news that you can be forgiven. And that was God the Father calling you and God the Son calling you. And that call is not a, hey, hello, um, would you mind, um, you know, could we have an appointment? That call gripped your soul, as it were, by the collar and dragged you, whether you liked it or not, as it were, into the kingdom of heaven because that call is an effectual call. In other words, when Jesus calls and he sets his love on you, that's it. Case closed. Yes, you do believe. Of course, you're not a robot. You are convicted of sin. You must hear the gospel. You must believe. You must trust. Yes, you do go to him. Yes, you do respond to the call. But the reason you respond is because of the power of the call of Jesus Christ. He loves you. And this call here is attributed to Jesus. We most often think of it being God the Father who calls us. And the scriptures are clear. It's the Father, God the Father, who chooses us in Christ and calls us to himself. But the Son is active with the Father in salvation. Interesting, in Romans chapter 1, verse 6, Paul addresses the believers in Rome, and he calls them, this is their, this is their title, the called of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought of yourself by that description? That's who you are. The called of Jesus Christ, if you're a believer. In John 10, verse 27, I love John 10. I'm sure some of you do too, where Jesus is talking about himself as the shepherd and how he loves his sheep. And, and um, John 10, 27, 28, some of our favorite Bible verses, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He doesn't say, my sheep, mm, 75% of the time, hear my voice. Um, I know them. Most of them follow me. Uh-uh. My sheep, those whom he has called, Hear my voice. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you may have forgotten. It may have been a while, but there was a time, and I've already talked about this. I don't know where you were. I don't know if you were in a church service or you were in a car or you were brokenhearted and, and, and convicted of sin and, and knowing that you needed to turn to Christ. You did not maybe hear the voice of Jesus audibly, but it might as well have been as though he were standing in the room speaking to you, calling you, and you knew you needed to confess your sin. 
and you knew you needed to trust in him and he was calling you to follow him and as sinful as you are as messed up as you are with all your baggage you decided to follow Jesus Christ why because you're that smart and you've got that that decision and uh and uh, that's good for you that's one of the no you followed him because you're one of his sheep and his sheep hear your his voice The call of Jesus Christ is an effectual call, which is very encouraging in terms of godliness because, yes, Peter's going to get to the diligence that we need to exercise. Yeah. We're going to talk about this in the weeks to come. We have to be active. We have to grow. We have to, there's things we need to do. But encouraging us from the very beginning is the reality that it's God who called us. It's Jesus who got this started in other words. And that's wonderfully encouraging because if this, if this deal called salvation and godliness started with my puny little will, forget it. Uh, my will is, is uh, sadly ineffectual so often, but not the call and the will of Jesus Christ. His divinity, his power, his call before we move on, just look down at verse 10. I forgot this. Notice down in verse 10, Peter will say, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and his choosing you. It's, it's his calling. This salvation that you've become a part of, it's, it's Jesus's. So the question is not whether he's doing his part or whether his call is effectual. The question is whether... You are among the called or are, are not. So his call is an effectual call. And we want to make certain that we are among those. And if we're not, if this morning, if right now you're, you're maybe thinking, I'm not really sure. How do I know? Have you heard the good news? That there's a God who's holy that you sinned against, but he loves you. And he sent his son to live and to die on the cross for your sins. And are you hearing the call, not audibly, but in your heart and in your conscience, you know it's true. And you, you are hearing the Lord's calling you to himself. You respond. Now, you don't put it off. There's a war going on because there's some part of you that's saying, I can't do that. I mean, I, what, what would other people think? I mean, that's not me. That would be, I can't. But this call, because you know it's true. You know there's a God. You know you're a sinner. You know you need to be saved. And you're hearing the gospel call. Respond today. Trust in Jesus Christ right now for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you don't need to listen to the rest of the sermon. Just right now, you just need to trust in Jesus. And if you go to him, Jesus says, all who come to me, I will never turn away. I will not turn out. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's that kind of Savior. Respond to his call. His divinity, his power, his call. And then fourthly, this morning, Peter introduces us to his glory and excellence at the end of verse 3. He called us by his own, that is, Jesus' own glory and excellence. 
Glory is uh, the Greek word here, doxa, or doxology. If you sing the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's, it's that word doxology is from that word doxa, glory. And glory is one of those words we maybe tend to throw around. Glory, um, what does it mean again? Biblically, it has, it has somewhat of the concept, in, in, especially in the Old Testament, of, of heaviness. Um, in other words, the, the heavy weightiness of who God is and the splendor and majesty of who he is, his glory. It's awesome. I mean, you know glory when you're, you're witnessing something that is beautiful and grand. We know glory, a form of glory in, in athletic contexts. Maybe some of you are sports fans and, and you know, your team, and they've been down and, and maybe they're injured and they're coming back and and, uh, and they're coming, and there's a certain glory because of the achievement. And it, it moves and stirs your soul. Well, there is no glory like the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, the Bible says, the glory of the Father, the glory of God. He is the, the weightiness, the heaviness of God. He is the, the majesty of God. He is meek, and he is humble, and in Jesus, we can come to a Savior who knows us, who, who even calls us friends, and yet is still at the same time the majesty of God, the glory of God. His glory and excellence. We need to remember in our day the glory of Jesus. We're, we're losing it. We're making Jesus into... Um, <laughs> we're making Jesus into a pillow... That's a poor illustration. I mean, he is, he is our savior. He is our comforter. He is our friend. But, but we will be comforted as we come back to the glory of Jesus Christ. Part of the reason our lives are so filled with fear and anxiety is because even though we know the command of Jesus and the call of Jesus that we don't need to be anxious or fearful, we've forgotten who it is. If, you, if, you, if our eyes were opened, if, if Jesus, and he's not going to, well, actually, he could come for us right now, but he's going to meet us in the clouds, not right here, right now. But if Jesus were to come and to stand in this room right now in his glory and majesty, you and I would be thinking, among other things, why, if I'm connected to him, have I ever been worried about anything? <laughs> because you'd be in the presence of his glory and his majesty, and we'd see how dumb and foolish it is. He, he possesses all glory, so we need to remember in these days his glory and his majesty. Many of you in the church family know that my favorite Puritan author and theologian and pastor in the early 1600s in England is John Owen, he writes a whole book on the glory of Christ, and that book was used of God in my life in many ways, and still is. But at the essence, what John Owen, and I won't quote for him, he's talking about run-on sentences. He goes on and on, but he's wonderful. But, but he points to the simple truth that when we are in our lives, when we are perplexed, when we are down, when we are discouraged, when we are overwhelmed by faith in what we learn in the scriptures, if we, by faith, look as it were at Jesus think about his glory think about who he is and his majesty and where he is and who he is that comfort will be ministered to our souls I mean 
If, if you're on the edge of a cliff and you're about to fall over and someone, you don't, can't see them, but you, 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 they say, hey, trust me, I can help you. And, and let's say you're a full-grown adult and not very light. And, <laughs> and you look over and suddenly you see this tiny little person about this big who hardly could maybe pick up a rock, a little apple. And they say, here, trust me. <laughs> you're thinking... Um, you may not have an option. You may have to grab their hand, but you're not very comforted because <laughs> you think, great, I'm going over the cliff and so is this little person. But if you're about to go over and you turn around and you see someone who is clearly strong, equipped, no fear on their face, they know exactly what they're doing. They're like, here, oh, okay. You reach out, you hold their hand, you're comforted. The glory and the excellence of Jesus Christ is sufficient to help us in the pursuit of godliness. His divinity, his power, his call, his glory and his excellence are super abundant. It is by, verse 4, his glory and excellence. It's, It's out of the super abundance of who he is that he can do what he does and how he can change us. He doesn't have any want. He doesn't have any lack. He doesn't have any need. Jesus isn't growing any job skills. He's not working on his resume. (laughs) He's not in the gym. He's not trying to develop more faithfulness. He is, as God the Father, all-sufficient and glorious in in glory and excellence. And out of his glory and excellence, by the overflow and superabundance of his glory and excellence... He then, verse 4, has granted to us his precious promises. And this is our fifth and final point this morning. God provides for our godliness in Jesus Christ. Everything we need for godliness is found in Jesus Christ, who he is, and in knowing him. And his promises are part of that. His promises are part of the provision for godliness. His promises are precious and magnificent. They are overflowing. They are found all over Scripture. They are found everywhere. And they have never given way. He can make a promise and he has the power and the character to keep it. Many of us know what it is to overcommit, to say that we will do something, and then to realize later to our shame it was out of pride and hubris that we made that claim because, after all, we actually are finite and we do have limited hours and limited strength. And we have let others down, sometimes those whom we love the most, because we made to them commitments that we could not fulfill. Not so with Jesus Christ. Out of his glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. I mean, they are astounding. We will be with him where he is. That we will be changed into his likeness. 
that we will be with him in the kingdom, that we will reign with him forever, that we will be raised from the dead, that we will be freed from sin and death and hell. On and on it goes, and he can make these kinds of staggering promises and keep them because of who he is. He is able to make us, notice in verse 4, Part, I mean, the promise that's highlighted here, or the result of the promises, is so that by the promises, by them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. I mean, I I don't belong associated with divine nature. I don't know about you. Um, We just think this is is way beyond, even as believers, this, this can't be. Let's clarify. First of all, Peter is not saying we become gods. We do not become deities ourselves. What does he mean by partakers of the divine nature? I think what he means is Peter heard Jesus when recorded in John 14. Jesus was talking to his disciples. Peter was there many years ago, nearly 40 years ago, earlier. And Jesus had said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. The Father, the Son, will come to the believer who trusts and obeys his word and make our abode. When we become believers in Jesus Christ, God brings us into spiritual union with his Son. And as we learn what is pleasing to Jesus and do what his commands, we actually have a spiritual, mystical... I'm going to use that word, mysterious, communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we partake. In other words, we have fellowship in the very divine nature. John, the disciple, the apostle, later says in 1 John 1.3, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. The Father and the Son and the Spirit have had a communion eternally, unhindered of love, of of perfect love and harmony and joy and life. And what God does makes, uh, makes us in his image. Angels are not made in his image. Angels are glorious beings to serve God, but we are unique among all God's creatures, made in his image, and then redeemed from our sin, restored, brought into union with Jesus Christ, and through our union and being joined to Jesus, we are brought into the fellowship of the Godhead, That's, I say this reverently, the gospel makes the the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit your people. I say that, maybe that's over the line. But I say it to make the point. Some of us are so shaped by our families and our, you think that, 
The gospel brings you into communion and fellowship with the very divine nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the way that that comes about is by these precious and magnificent promises of Jesus. So the call to godliness is imposing. And God does have a lot to work on in most of us, I assume, in this room. He has a lot to work on in me. I, I have a lot of work to do. And again, I say to you, I, I, as I read this letter, I thought, I, I need to hear this letter now. I need to hear this call. It's too easy to let the years go by as a Christian, even a pastor, and to be kind of, kind of coast, to let up on diligence in pursuing Christ. So it is imposing. It is challenging. Yep, we're going to have to work. It's going to be humbling. We're going to be confronted. We're going to be told by the Holy Spirit in some places we're wrong and we need to change. It's going to be hard. And there's a lot of work to do in making us like Jesus. But oh, dear friend, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, in Jesus Christ, there is more than all sufficiency to provide for our growth in godliness. Put it this way, in summary, Jesus can handle you. No, he can handle you. He hasn't met anybody he can't handle. So that the little song that uh, I remember learning at camp as a boy, I, I just I don't remember a lot of those songs. I loved them, but I forget. And I know I've, I've uh, I love this little song. It's great theology packed into a little kid's song. Little by little, day by day, little by little in every way, Jesus is changing me. He's changing me as I'm growing in his ways and obeying what he says. Jesus is changing me. He's changing me, my precious Savior. I'm not the same person that I used to be. Sometimes it's slow going. (laughs) But there's a knowing that one day perfect I will be. And in the end, yes, God will transform us instantly. But that transformation, that children's song is right. It's day by day, little by little, Jesus is changing me. May it be so. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. We worship you as God, God the Son. This morning we bow before you in your all-sufficiency. Forgive us for having, again, so often little thoughts about you so that you somehow move to the periphery of our lives. May you dominate the horizon of our heart, our affections, our days. And, oh God, we pray in and through your Son, we pray, change us, make us more like him. We beg, we ask, we plead, and we rejoice this morning that you can and you will because it's you who called us. It's you, Lord Jesus, who called us. And your sheep hear your voice and you will not lose one of us. We thank you in your name. Amen.